So I basically told him where he could go and walked out of the room. And the reaction when I was sharing the story with my, my colleagues, kind of out of shock, but kind of out of um, the sense of wanting some um, feedback on how I had handled it. Some people thought I handled it appropriately. By and large, though, a lot of folks thought that I had been too bitchy in my response to him and that I had probably ruined that relationship and it would impact my ability to get my job done. And so um, that was one of those turning point moments where um, I just thought, you know, at, at some point, a woman has to be completely comfortable with leaning into that bitch mode and away from cupcake mode when things like that happen to her. Welcome to the She Leads Business Show for female owners and leaders of small and medium-sized businesses. You are in the right place if you want a more aligned success, to make a greater impact, and to have happy, engaged, high-performing, and inflow teams that you trust to get the job done. Allowing you to ditch the stress and firefighting, to focus on your most fulfilling high-value work, and to have the financial and time freedom to live the life you truly desire and deserve. I'm your host, Una Doyle, founder of creativeflow.tv, and I'm a speaker, business strategist, and impact coach. Business owners and leaders hire me to help them to achieve impact-driven growth. Yes, not every business owner is in the position to hire me, so I created this podcast, and in every episode, myself and my guests share the stories, strategies, and actionable wisdom to help you to achieve this too. Now, on with the show. Hello, 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 and welcome to She Leads Business. I am your host, Una Doyle, and today I am super delighted to welcome Joni Wickham. Joni, hello, welcome. Hello, it's so nice to, to be with you today. Oh, I'm so delighted to have you here. And I've got to tell you, I loved reading your book. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you liked it. Really, really enjoyed it. And in fact, I may even put it on our list next year for my book club. Nice. That sounds yeah. great. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, Jody, please introduce yourself. I am Joni Wickham, and I live in Kansas City, Missouri, right in the heartland of the United States. And uh, I have been in business um, with my dear friend and co-founder of Wickham James Strategy Solutions, uh, former mayor of Kansas City, Sly James. We've been in business for about 14 months. And prior to that, when he served as mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, I was his chief of staff for six years. And then I had um, experience in state government in Missouri prior to that, and then in federal government in Washington, D.C. for um, several years prior to that. So I've always worked in politics, government, and communications, and now I am, uh, we're doing our own thing in our consulting firm in the private industry, private sector. And having done some consulting work with local authorities and having worked for our national railways in the past, there's quite a big difference between being in public service and being in business. How are you finding it? I love the control over my own schedule that I never had working in politics and government um, because um, there are so many things when you are in public service and working for an elected official that are just way beyond your control. Um, so I enjoy, for the most part, having greater control over my life and my schedule, the projects that I work on, 
um, that sort of thing. And this has been a whole new adventure, getting to, to see um, how the private sector works and how it's uh, similar or maybe different than what I have seen and experienced in the public sector. So apart from your schedule, what have you found most different? You know, I anticipated, and frankly, I think a lot of this is because of the narrative that you often hear from the private sector about the public sector. I expected the private sector to work a lot more quickly and be much more fast paced. And in my experience, that has not been the case. Um, and I kind of wonder if um, some of that is um, related to a false narrative of kind of outdated um, uh, perspectives of what public sector work is all about. Um, and also, I was just so used to working for elected officials who were very fast paced in general and like to get things done, particularly um, the last six years when I was chief of staff, we barely had a, had time to even sit down. Um, so that has been a bit of a surprise for me. I, I thought that the pace would be um, much quicker than it than it has been so far. And the the private companies that you're working and interacting with, interacting with, what kind of size are they? Like, are they corporates or small, medium-sized businesses? So it's been everything, uh, which has really been interesting and um, fun to have that sort of dynamic and that experience working with all different sizes of businesses. And tell me who. Who would be your ideal client and what would you do for them? Because I, I want to try and get to understand, like my, my background is in marketing and communication. So, you know, I've done marketing, public relations, etc., working for agencies. So what I'm wondering is, like, are you bringing some of your political know-how and working still in politics but from a private perspective or is it kind of much more commercial what you're doing? Yeah so we've done a bit of political consulting but the bulk of our work so far has not been with political clients or political entities. Um, it's It has been really nice for me to see how transferable my knowledge and skill set and network has been uh, in the private sector. So to answer your question our ideal client would be um, individuals or organizations who need help getting their story out to their audience or audiences. Uh, anyone who needs help thinking through how to navigate public policy or government institutions. Um, we also uh, help our clients with mediations. Uh, Mayor James is a very accomplished mediator. And so if there was a dispute where it would be really helpful to have a third party come in and help mediate a solution, uh, we could certainly um, do that as well. Fascinating. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, I mentioned your book beforehand. So the book is called The Thin Line Between Cupcake and Bitch. That is the first podcast episode. I'm going to have to put that E on for explicit. <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with the word, because I don't normally swear. <laughs> Um, and there were some things in that that I really, really liked. Um, and there were definitely those moments, like what I call the what the flip moments of some of your experiences. Um, one of them that comes to mind is uh, when you were 20, it was back in 2013, you were heavily pregnant and you'd done all this work 
for an important meeting between the Canvas City development community and the unions. Please share what happened in, in your own words with us. Yeah, so this was an interesting experience. So as you mentioned, I had worked for weeks with stakeholders on both sides um, uh, of the economic development uh, issue that we were working on. And I had had meetings with probably uh, 12 to 15 different stakeholder groups, making them um, aware of the mayor's feelings on the topic. And then I also made sure that I conveyed and analyzed all those different dynamics to the mayor so he would know what to anticipate. I put an agenda together for the meeting. I had to deal with um, the, the media uh, who were interested in what was taking place, put together a communications plan. And when we walked into this big meeting, um, everyone that had been involved in these discussions had a uh, name card with their name on it. And they had a seat at the table to sit in, everyone but me. Uh, and I was the only woman and probably the only person at the time under 50, I believe. Um, so it was um, very interesting, uh, very insightful to have that experience um, and see that even though I had been uh, the instigator, if you will, for bringing all these people together and trying to get the solution, the people involved still didn't recognize uh, what I was bringing to the table and literally did not leave a seat for me at the table. So Mayor James, now my um, partner at Wickham James Strategies and Solutions, um, to his credit, saw this uh, instantly as soon as we walked in. Um, I was very pregnant at the time and um, he always has a knack for making a strategic spectacle when he needs to. And he certainly did in this, in this instance. And he made sure that all of those men realized um, how demeaning and backwards, uh, frankly, their attitude was. And he um, went over to the side of the room and pulled a chair right beside him and made sure everyone saw that he valued um, the expertise uh, that I brought to that conversation and that my spot in that conversation was right beside him. And there were also several times in that instance and others where he would make a point um, to look at me and say, well, Joni, what do you think about this? Or Joni, how do you think we proceed? And that was so important for the other men in the room to see how he valued uh, what I brought to the room. And it made those other men, it, it changed their view of how they saw me, my leadership skills and my contributions. I, and I remember, in fact, a man who was in that meeting further down the road told you how he'd advocated for a woman in his organization because of what had happened that day. H how did it feel when you first saw that there was no, no place at the table for you? I was um, probably more shocked than irate uh, but later, as I reflected on it, I became more and more mad as I reflected on it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that um, that anger didn't necessarily bubble up to the top of the emotions that I was feeling in the moment. Um, because I'm not sure I would have been able to summon the emotional intelligence to handle it <laughs> in the most uh, professional manner. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a teaching moment for me and for everyone else in the room. Um, and it has been so interesting as I have been talking to different audiences about the book that 
lots of women in the professional world experience similar situations. Oh, for sure. I've interviewed several of them <laughs> where they're being asked to make cups of tea and take yeah. notes. And it's like, well, <laughs> hello. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. It was it took quite a journey for you to get to be in that table from, you know, your your early beginnings. Can you please share a bit about, you know, what was it like for you growing up and what it took for you to get there? Sure. Um, I had very humble beginnings. I grew up in a very rural area in eastern North Carolina. And um, my mother um, had me, which was 15 years old, and um, brought me home um, at the time to a trailer park sitting in the middle of a tobacco field. And um, my grandparents never learned to read and write. So I was um, able to see during my childhood how under education, under employment, and in some instances, um, racism and classism, how those impact uh, individuals and, and families' ability to thrive or not to thrive. And so um, for all of those reasons, politics, policy, and government was always a center point in my life, whether I wanted it to be or, or not, and whether I was even old enough and mature enough to recognize that that's what it was at the moment. And so when I started thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, um, I always felt like leadership and influencing public policy and at risk of sounding a bit corny, making the world a bit better, uh, was always something that I had in the back of my mind. So I um, went to college at a um, tiny all-women's college in, in Raleigh, North Carolina called Meredith College. And it was such a, a profound experience for me. And part of the reason was because my first year there, I got an internship at a small um, hometown newspaper. And I had gone into my freshman year thinking that I wanted to be a political journalist. And so I went to this internship and Ironically, considering what I've done for the past six years of my life, they asked me to go cover a city council meeting. And when I walked in, I saw seven older white men who were uh, the members of the city council because that's how things worked back then. And they had an $800,000 budget gap that they were looking to fill. And for a town that tiny back then, $800,000 was huge. And so they were trying to figure out how they were going to close this gap. And one of the gentlemen at the table said, well, what is this, what is this WISE program? Has anyone ever heard of that? And no one at the table making the decisions had ever even heard of that program. So they just cut it. But I knew that it was WIC, Women, Infant, Children, better known as WIC. And that program helps low-income women, infant, and children um, make sure that they have shelter, clothing, and food. And so when these gentlemen cut that program, I knew firsthand what that meant for families in that area. And I went back to my editor and I was like, oh my gosh, can you believe this happened? And he was like, I know that's crazy. You gotta go write about it now. And so it just didn't sit very well with me that my only role in that system was to write about decisions after they were made. Just didn't, it, it didn't um, mesh with my personality. And so I decided to change my major and major in political science and figure out a way to earn a seat at that decision-making table and make sure that the perspectives of women um, was heard in decision-making um, meetings like the one that I had observed. Well, what can you say to that? I mean, that decision 
took your whole life on an you know a whole new trajectory and also if you think about how you've been able to support mayor james and all the initiatives that happened as a result it's had a massive impact in your locality hasn't it yes for sure for sure it definitely was a life-changing decision it's interesting isn't it how we can look back at these turning points and see what a difference they made what would be another turning point in your life? Um, I would say another turning point um, was moving to Kansas City. I had, had worked at the state capitol in Jefferson City in state politics, and I had had that previous experience in federal politics. And at the point in which I got a call to come interview with then uh, the mayor-elect, I really wasn't sure I wanted to continue in a career in politics. I was kind of jaded, a bit cynical, and just tired of the BS, to be honest. And so I um, went to interview with him and within five minutes was just ready to, to make that move because I wanted to be part of an administration that um, valued authenticity, um, a bold vision, and getting things done based on facts and data. And, um, but it, it wasn't an immediate interest, uh, to be honest. I, I really was looking for some other opportunities at the same time um, in, the, in the private sector. And so you're right, it is kind of interesting how one decision can really change the direction of your whole life. Absolutely. Well, I'm very glad that you did take that. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> that you took that. You took that moment and, you know, went on that different uh, trajectory. Definitely makes a, a big difference. Um, I thought, um, w when was it that the you had a senator who said to you, you can be bitter and pissed at the world because of people underestimating you, or you can figure out how to use it to your advantage. It's 100% up to you. Uh, yeah, I thought no. that was really interesting, partly, partly because of, how you initially reacted to it and then what you then took that to mean. Yeah, so that was right after I decided to change my major in college and major in politics. So part of my program in, in my undergraduate studies was to, um, we, we always had to intern in our, in our um, course of study in that major. And so once I had decided to go into politics, I got this internship with the Senator and um, the staff asked me to write a speech and I toiled over it and just worked really hard. And when I submitted it, I just kind of felt like everyone expected it not to be very good. And um, perhaps even I did too, um, which is reflective of imposter syndrome, one of the concepts that I talk about in the book. And so the Senator called me into his office and I was freaking out. I was trying so hard not to cry because I was freaking out. I thought I was gonna get fired. And you're right, the conversation he had with me um, was basically this speech was really good, even though no one expected it to be. And he told me that um, because um, I was a petite female with a Southern accent and quote unquote, kind of cute, I would probably always be underestimated throughout my career. And it was up to me to be bitter and pissed at the world about it or to use it to my, my advantage. And um, initially after that conversation, I was a bit taken aback and kind of mad at him that he thought um, that that was gonna be my reality. 
And now with 20 something years in my rear view mirror, I can see that he was absolutely right. And he was probably speaking from firsthand experience and observing his and his male peers reactions to women. And also probably observing the experience, the experiences of professional women that he had been around. Um, and so it, it definitely has proven true um, in my career and in the career of many of my mentors and, and colleagues. Absolutely. We, we talked earlier about what the flip moments and, you know, it wasn't too long later, I think, when you had another one, when you went to see the Speaker of the House. Yes. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Yes. So I um, had to go and talk to the Speaker of the House at the State Capitol in Jefferson City, Missouri. And I had to wait for probably 30 minutes for him to show up, which wasn't too uncommon. And when I was sitting in his office, for some reason, I was struck by all the pictures of his wife and his two daughters. And so he walks in and um, starts the, the conversation, of course, by um, looking me up and down. And uh, when I told him that I was there to, to talk to him about a particular piece of legislation, he said something to the effect of, okay, well, that's fine, but you're gonna have to come over here and sit in my lap if you wanna talk to me. And I mean, what do you say when someone with a position of power and influence says and reacts that way to you. Um, and particularly as he has this shrine in his office to his wife and two young daughters. Um, so I basically told him where he could go and walked out of the room. And the reaction when I was sharing the story with my, my colleagues, kind of out of shock, but kind of out of um, the sense of wanting some um, feedback on how I had handled it. Some people thought I handled it appropriately. Um, by and large though, a lot of folks um, thought that I had been too bitchy in my response to him and that I had probably ruined that relationship and it would impact my ability to get my job done. And so um, that was one of those turning point moments where um, I just thought, you know, at, at some point um, a woman has to be completely comfortable with leaning into that bitch mode and away from cupcake mode when things like that happen to her. I, I've no idea what I would have said in that position. You know, I, I certainly would have been out the door, that's for sure. <laughs> and I think many people would, yet, you know, for a lot of women, they would just be in such a state of, state of shock that they might even just be like paralyzed. And, yeah. you know, like we, we've heard this so much, uh, you know, as part of the Me Too movement of, you know, when you have somebody in a position of power and uh, they can wield so much influence it, and, and just the shock of it, you know, particularly like you're there looking at this person's family and going, oh, they must be such a loving husband and father and then they come out with something like that it, it is I mean I mean it would absolutely make your blood boil to be putting a, a young woman because you're in your early 20s if I remember you know when this happened and uh, I mean like it's not great at any age but the younger you are and the less experienced somebody is the generally the harder it's going to be for them to handle that exactly yeah and um, what was the impact in your working relationship? Did you need to deal with him again in your role? And how 
I did. Well, how did that turn out? <laughs> he just acted like that. It, that thing never happened. Right. That event never happened. Never addressed it. Never talked about it or anything. How many people do you know with outdated websites that do not generate any business for them? We've gone way past the stage where your website is simply an online brochure. Your website visitors expect more. And today, the affordable tools to have a high converting website are at your fingertips. Now, I want to emphasize that there are times and certain industries where you will want to work with specialist web developers, where they're doing everything customized from scratch and, you know, maybe integrating certain apps into your business, or perhaps you might need to use a specialist platform, such as if you're in e-commerce. For the rest of us, though, I highly recommend this resource because it will not only allow you to create a conversion focused website, it has the training and support to help you to do it too. What am I talking about? Thrive Themes, conversion focused WordPress themes and plugins. They're built from the ground up to make your entire website convert more of your visitors into subscribers, customers and clients. Now, if you have ever experienced problems, I know I certainly used to do, with WordPress plugins not playing nicely together, you will absolutely love this because within the Thrive Suite, you get access to everything, not just themes, but even a theme builder too, in case you want to customize things a bit more. And by the way, both the builder and the visual editor, Thrive Architect, where you do your pages and posts, it's all drag and drop. So they're super easy to use. There's over 327 beautiful conversion focused landing page templates. So you can ditch any separate system that you're using for that. There's also Thrive Leads, which means you can create and design every type of opt-in form you're able to run A-B tests on those and grow your list faster than ever before. And of course, you're able to integrate it with your mailing list and or your CRM. You're able to create fully customized quizzes that allow you to gain valuable visitor insights. Um, it'll help you to segment your email list, to drive website engagement and, of course, get social shares with Thrive Quiz Builder. Now, I love this and you might have seen several quizzes that I've created over the years. Plus, you're even able to build professional online courses with Thrive Apprentice, make commenting fun and engagement with Thrive Comments, do A-B testing for landing pages with Thrive Optimize. You can create evergreen countdown scarcity campaigns. And one of the things that I love is you can gather and display testimonials for social proof. Now, I personally have been a Thrive customer for years and unlike a lot of internet marketing companies out there, I trust Shane, who, who runs this fir firm, and his team completely. They are 100% focused on improving the product suite and our experience with them. They consistently are doing product updates and sharing valuable trainings. And there's even a whole Thrive University that teaches you why and when to use certain plugins as well as how how to use them. And of course, because it's all part of the Thrive Suite, everything works together. There's hardly anything that I use in addition to Thrive Themes. So go check them out at creativeflow.tv forward slash Thrive Themes or use the link in the description. So those people who thought that you'd put your career in jeopardy in this instance, they were wrong. Right. 
I, and I want, I wanted to clearly state that because, you know, someone listening to this could be in this situation right now. They might have a, a boss or a client or somebody in their life that is not behaving appropriately and it's just not on. And we right. need to be able to stand up and speak up in these kinds of situations. And it's, it's not an easy situation, is it? One of the things that you said at the end of your book, there's when it comes to this you know, gender bias or whether it's to do with people of color or whatever, somebody's sexuality, um, there's a systemic problem but then there's also, so the system needs to be changed and we also need to take part in that on an individual level. And that's something that I've talked about and asked quite a few women about of, well, how much is down to us and how much is down to the system? We can't kind of throw our hands in the air and go, oh, well, the system sucks and there's nothing we can do about it because there is so much that we can do about it. And it doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard or perhaps harder for us to achieve what we want to achieve, but we can do it. And the more that we do it, the more positive role models there are. And then that creates a much more positive cycle. And it's only by having more positive role models and more women who are successful in business, in politics, that we're going to get that systemic change, that there will come to be that tipping point where instead of the men in the room kind of going, um, oh, look, that man's going home to look after his children <laughs> or whatever it might be. And instead and it being, wow, gosh, isn't that amazing to, well, people don't even talk about it because it's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, those systems and institutions are driven by and made up of human behavior and social norms. And if individually we are not all committed to um, changing those human behaviors and social norms, we shouldn't expect those institutions and systems to change. Exactly. It's about what we tolerate. Yes. Yes. And we have to change what we tolerate in our own lives first. Because right. it's so interesting with so many of, I, I coach both men and women and, you know, everybody has got different levels of insecurities and they do impact their businesses and their business growth and how they enjoy their business and their business growth. And what's so interesting is that with women, I often have to get them to be able to prioritize themselves and their goals before we can implement. The, you can have the most amazing strategies, <laughs> but if they're not going to prioritize themselves and their goals first, then they're just not going to get implemented. Right. That's exactly right. Whereas I've never had to do that with a man. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, it goes back to that old example where typically um, a woman has to meet 10 of 10 requirements to apply for a job. But if man meets two, if a man meets two of the 10, he'll go ahead and apply. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> very, very true. 
I think a lot of this is around personal leadership and how we lead others as well. So um, how big was your team when you were chief of staff? We had anywhere from uh, 10 to 15, depending on the moment. Okay. You talked about those who fail up. Yes, fail up. Yeah, definitely a concept um, that I saw quite a bit of uh, in politics. And um, I wanted to write about it because in my experience, when people from humble beginnings like me, um, when it's evident that um, there are people within organizations that maybe don't have the work ethic or skill set to climb the ladder, but they do anyway, it can be pretty distracting and destructive um, to the psyche. And it also feeds into those feelings of imposter syndrome that we talked about. So that's why I wanted to, to dedicate a whole chapter to that concept of failing up. Can you just explain what exactly you mean by that? By failing up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I'll, give you, um, I'll give you an example. So if you're in this organization and um, let's just say you're a woman, uh, particularly a woman of color, and you see that um, there are white men who continue to climb the ranks, yet their expertise is not um, necessarily what they think it is, um, and their leadership skills are lacking, yet they tend to get a lot of accolades and they continue getting promoted. That is a concept called failing up. Have you ever heard of the Peter Principle? Yeah, very similar. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you get promoted to your level of incompetence. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting that it's called the Peter Principle and not the Phyllis Principle? <laughs> Very true. <laughs> and, and sometimes I, I remember when I worked in the railways and I, I did frequently think to myself, how did this person get that job? They're useless. I know. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> not, not that there's plenty of really good, hardworking people in the railways, by the way. But yeah. the, the odd person here and there, I would just be like, how? What? Yeah. What? It, it just was, it kind of beggared belief. And... I realized after asking, I I was having a conversation with somebody and they said, oh, well, they were over here, but they created so much havoc. They promoted them to this position where they could do less damage. Yeah. What sense does that make? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And in the realm of public leadership, um, I help teach leadership and communications classes um, for women who are interested in running for office through an amazing nonpartisan organization called She Should Run. And inevitably, I think I've done four or five different um, uh, cohorts of these courses. Inevitably, I'll hear the refrain from women, I just don't think I know enough to, to run for office. And then I go and sit on my couch and turn on the evening news and see some of these current elected officials. And I'm like, how can any of these women in these cohorts think that they don't know enough to be an elected official when we've got this going on? <laughs> Precisely. 
It's crazy, isn't it? Um, th this is one of the things I'm really keen on when I'm working with businesses and teams is accountability. Yes. And so if you have a business plan and you have roles that are based upon specific projects, processes, promotions, and those and the company's values are what are discussed in regular reviews, then you don't, you cannot have this Peter principle or this failing up happening because it's focusing on results and how people are getting results. And I think that's missing from so many organizations. Right. And I, I wrote about this in that failing up chapter because when organizations have transparent, realistic performance measures to measure employees by, um, in, in my experience, it helps um, put an end to that failing up phenomenon. Exactly. And it, it's interesting because I think for many leaders, accountability is a bit of a scary thing because it means they're going to have to have uncomfortable conversations. Right. <laughs> Yet actually, the more they're prepared to have those uncomfortable conversations, the less they're actually going to have. Right. They have to show that they're going to do that. And, you know, when you get teams really working well, you will have peer to peer accountability because people won't put up with so and so not pulling their weight and they will talk to them and they will find out, well, actually, is this a personal issue? Is there something going on at home? Is it a skill issue? Is it an attitude problem? But they can, you know, at least try and work together to to make things work to help achieve the organization's vision. Um, and you've got to be super specific in the vision, in the values, in the the goals and the plans, you know, for those. And I think that specificity is missing a lot um, because people don't dive deep enough. They don't take the time to be strategic enough and to to really delve into the that aspect of the leadership enough. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I also think oftentimes in organizations, regardless of whether or not you're in the public or the private sector, leaders can um, forget or avoid establishing um, realistic expectations. Um, and so I think that's an important thing for leaders to keep in mind too. Definitely. <laughs> I actually, I heard, um, I heard a speaker whose name escapes me right now. And he was talking about smart goals and saying that actually smart goals don't work. And the guy who was credited with coming up with smart goals never actually said smart goals. He said you need smart steps on the way to goals. So goals actually ought to be really big. The, the big, hairy, audacious goals, as Jim Collins talked about something that people can really latch on to, get excited about. So the goal ought to be unrealistic. Otherwise, you're just heading for mediocrity. However, the steps to get to the goal need to be smart and they need to be realistic. So I love that. Yeah. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. I, I thought that was really good. I thought that was really good. And I will, 
I will do my best to reconnect with that chap. I think he might have written a book, actually. I'll um, if he has, I'll link it um, or some information about it. So so you can go and read some more about it. Have you ever wondered why most time management and productivity systems fail despite the huge amount of information that is out there? So why is it that so many business owners end up overworked and sometimes even burnt out? The answer is flow, or rather a lack of it for too many people. I've put together a free 50-minute jam-packed training video where you'll find out how to consistently get in flow, how to increase sales, reduce stress and overwhelm, and have more fun, focus, and creativity without being worked into the ground. Now, here's some things that I'll reveal on this free video training. So, number one, what is flow? the nine elements of it and how to identify it, why it's so important to reduce stress and overwhelm and increase focus. Number two, why many well-meaning business coaches, consultants and trainers can actually handicap you from having sustainable growth. Number three, the three specific elements of flow that you need in place in your business and the simple yet profound tool that makes this easy to do. Number four, the golden rule of flow that underpins everything without which it's impossible to implement in your business. And number five, the one thing that will free up your time and increase your productivity so that you can get what's most important done. And you'll also learn the real reason behind why even those who do know how to get into a flow state often end up not mastering it. Sound good? Well, many other business owners just like you have told me how much they got from this training too. So head over to creativeflow.tv, get flow, or click the link in the episode description. I want to talk about some of your successes. So the, because you've achieved a lot and we'd be here all day if we were to go through everything. And but one of the things you talked about was having positive female role models. Yeah, I mean, when when I was growing up and trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself and how I was going to um, make the world a better place, as I mentioned, was one of my things that I've I've always kind of been interested in. Um, it became very apparent to me that because of my humble background, which by the way wasn't all bad, um, I I did learn a lot of lessons about resiliency and work ethic because of my background. So it was not all bad by any stretch of the imagination. However, I did not have a lot of resources and um, relationships to fall back on. Um, One of my teachers in college, thankfully, um, pitied me enough to take me shopping for my first business suit when I got my very first um, internship interview because I didn't even know, believe it or not, I did not even know that there were men's business suits and women's business suits because I had never seen a woman wear a suit. So I was going to go off to this men's department store and buy a a suit and have my grandma tailor it to me. Um, So, and that's just one example of how I was saved by my tribe, as I call it um, in my book. So yeah, networking and having mentors and sponsors 
are critically important for everyone, particularly for um, people who may be first generation um, professionals. That's really interesting to to think about. I've never heard that phrase before, first generation professionals. But that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes you hear about first generation college students, and that certainly is its own dynamic. And we sometimes forget, yeah, me too. Uh, and we sometimes forget that next step after that. After you're a first generation college student, you might be a first generation professional and the first person in your family to work in a um, quote unquote professional environment. And um, what are the standard operating procedures that other people just know because they've always been around it that you might be clueless to you don't know what you don't know (laughs) because people particularly (laughs) women have a tendency to blame themselves for what they don't know but if you weren't ever taught something how could you know it if it wasn't in your environment then how could you have seen it so it's great that you had those wonderful leaders, you know, to be able to help you with that. Um, absolutely. Yes. Um, sure. I want to talk about the the title of your book. So the thin line between cupcake and bitch. And I do have a question for you because it, you allude to it a little bit in the book, but I want to hear more about I, I totally get why you would use that as a t- as the title because it stands out. It's a little bit contentious, maybe, and you know I can see it would increase sales. But once you get in the book, you keep using the word bitch, and I'm like, well, why aren't you using being assertive or something along those lines? Because that's what you mean, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think the point is. There are so many women in my experience who face that line between cupcake and bitch. And one of my goals through the book is to have really honest and authentic conversations about that line and what it means. And I didn't want to sugarcoat anything. Um, And so that's why I chose to use the word bitch in the title and throughout the book. There were so many people throughout the course of writing the book and editing the book who really wanted me to to change the word to something else. And I felt like if I did that, I was completely missing the whole point of the book. The, The point of the book is authenticity and being honest about what women are dealing with in the workplace. And so I just decided to to go for it and uh, keep the word and talk about the word um, and uh, not shy away from it. Because I got to tell you, I wouldn't have bought the book if I hadn't met you. It would put me off reading it because of of the title. Uh And I love the book and I love what you've got in it. Um, So, you know, if you're listening to this and the title has put you off, don't let it. But for for me, it it really did bring up that question of, well, because because it comes up in so many coaching conversations that I've had when I'm talking about people becoming, particularly women, becoming more assertive, actually standing up and speaking up for themselves. And, you know, there's there's quite a bit of mindset work uh, done within my business coaching. And the, the number one thing that women will say is, but I don't want to be a bitch. Yep, that's absolutely true. 
And then conversely, women will say, I don't want people to think I'm too nice. If I've got an employee who isn't delivering and I have to, I, I, I'm, people think I should kick them to the curb, but instead I keep them on. I don't want people to think that I'm too much of a cupcake and I'm too nice. And you talk about broadening right. rather than it being a thin line, that, that place in between. I think that's where we've got to be. Yeah, I just had to say that because that's kind of how I how I feel about it. And um, uh, because I, you know, what I'm saying to women is, well, you don't have to be a bitch, but you do need to be assertive. And so you've got to be confident. You've got to speak up. You've got to make requests. You've got to ask for what you want. You've got to make statements. You've got to set boundaries, healthy boundaries. You know, uh, and like like the the leader who, you know, if they're prepared to hold people accountable, they often don't. It's exactly the same when we set healthy boundaries about what we are prepared to tolerate, how we expect to be treated, you know, where where we respect ourselves and we expect other people to respect ourselves as well. Then quite often just that whole vibe that you give off means that people will treat you with respect even if they will treat 10 other women without it yeah yeah it's it's executive presence which is another um, book chapter that we talk about in executive presence is that um that feeling when someone walks in the room and you immediately feel like they are credible with whatever they're talking about and you want to hear more with what they have to say and men and women alike can can suffer from executive presence deficiencies, but there's a lot of research that shows that women in particular are put in what's called an executive presence penalty box um, when they don't exhibit those traits um, that show others that they have strong executive Absolutely. presence. Absolutely. You're right. I've got a question from a listener, Debbie Harvey, and she asked, if you could do one thing differently, what would it be and why? I wish I hadn't spent so much time earlier in my career worried about what other people thought. I have freed myself of that limitation. Um, the older and wiser that I get and with more experience in my rear view um, window. But um, yeah, I, I think that would be it. I spent too much time in my early to mid 20s worried about other people's perception of me and my intelligence um, and what I was capable of. And I, I wish I had not um, expended so much energy you. on that. <laughs> I was definitely there too. <laughs> so, absolutely. I mean, so before I did all the her. personal development work I did, my self-esteem was through the floor. <laughs> I cared a lot about what people thought and, and was a real people pleaser, in fact. So, yeah. Um, Okay, so we got to, to the point in the show, which I call the speak up statistic, because I think the more knowledge that we have around what is going on for, for women in business and actually for this episode in public life, <laughs> I think the better because then, you know, we, we know more when we know more, we can do better, can't we? Um, and so I actually looked at some of the some of the research from the appointments project. So would you like to share with share with uh, our listeners what the Appointments Project is? Sure. So the Appointments Project is one of my favorite and I think most impactful things that we accomplished when we were in the mayor's office. And it was a collaboration that we had with um, United We, based here in Kansas City, Missouri, formerly known as the Women's Foundation. 
And we wanted to um, provide a solution to some research that uh, United We commissioned looking at barriers to women's um, civic leadership. And one of those barriers were that they simply weren't asked. Um, oftentimes when um, mayors or county executives or even governors would go to fill these volunteer roles, they would fill them with people who were in their network and that they already knew. And so that eliminated a lot of really smart women who had a lot of expertise to give to their community. And so we created the Appointments Project, um, which is a way to get more um, diverse women involved in um, those public boards and commissions. Fabulous. Well, I'm going to share some statistics that uh, they were talking about in terms of the gender gap in government. So 15% of city administrators are female, 21% of mayors, 28.6% of state legislators and 23.7% in US Congress. So this was done two, three years ago? Right. Correct. Okay. So that those numbers are pretty shocking, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, that's for sure. And one reason why we wanted to focus on these boards and commissions is because it helps women dip their toe into the whole um, leadership process and helps them build their confidence so that hopefully down the road, they will feel confident to run for public office. And here's three reasons why you want to be thinking about this, ladies. According to the research, it shows that having more women increases public trust in government. I could say so much about that, but I won't. It boosts efficiency and it improves the lives of residents. So I think those are three great reasons to consider getting involved. Um, and I know we I've also interviewed some other heads of charities as well. So I think there's there's lots of opportunities for women, whether they're in a career or whether they're running their own business to to get into leadership roles, whether that's something they do now or whether that's something they're aspiring to do, that, that can be an amazing learning for them as well as a great way of contributing and giving back as well. Right, yeah, leadership looks so many different ways. And for some people, it can be running for office. For other people, it could be being a chief of staff. And to your point, for other people, it could be um, being the, the head of a foundation or a nonprofit in their community that does good work for, for families. Definitely. I always like to ask my guests to have some takeaways for our listeners. And I thought what would be brilliant would be to talk about your power structure. Would you please share what that is? Yeah. So, um, power is um, an acronym that I identified to help us think about ways that we can widen that thin line uh, between cupcake and bitch. So it's preparation, ownership, wisdom, energy, and respect. And so each of those components are things that we can do for ourselves. For example, energy, um, cutting out toxic forces or people who might zap energy from us so that we can conserve our energy um, to achieve our forward momentum and to achieve our longer term goals. And then um, some of them are more outward focused, um, like wisdom. Um, and, and that could mean um, wisdom that you might get from a book 
or which is um, in the realm of continuous learning, or it can mean the wisdom that you glean from your tribe, your mentors and your sponsors. Absolutely. And I, and I love the ownership one in that as well, because if we don't take responsibility, then we can't change anything. And Precisely. I think so it, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because when we take responsibility, and that was one of my life-changing moments. Um, have you ever read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey? Okay, yes. that was a life-changing moment for me. <laughs> because when I read that book, in fact, I was only a couple of chapters in, and I realized that I had not been taking any responsibility for my ha happiness, for my life, for my career at that time, nothing. And boom, yeah, that just changed everything and set me off on a, a whole other course. So I think ownership is really important because even though responsibility can be a bit scary at times, I don't, if you don't take responsibility, then you're essentially powerless. I think being powerless is more scary than taking responsibility. Absolutely. Yes. Good point. Fabulous. So preparation, ownership, wisdom, energy, and respect. I think five great elements to think about. Um, Joni, it has been absolutely wonderful speaking with you here today. What would be, if you were to sum up, your life experience into one golden nugget to share, what would that be? That is a really good question. I think if I could sum it up, it would be to keep in mind that um, success is a balance between being prepared and doing work on yourself to position you um, to succeed no matter what. And it's that balance between that and um, being proactive about finding ways um, to leverage your strengths and to um, find fulfillment and meaning. Follow that. <laughs> <laughs> so some great things there. Absolutely. Um, I, I think impact is such an important thing and it's something that I like to uh, to do kind of through through this podcast and through the business and I'm going to give you a choice in a moment of three different initiatives and just for being on this podcast we're going to make something good happen how does that sound great option number one provide safe drinking water to a family for a week option two provide a day of business training to, uh, to women in a third world country or um, three sessions of raising reproductive health awareness among girls. Man, that is a really tough one. I'm going to go with number two. Number Be two? Yeah, because I think... Um, it's easier for women to take charge of all aspects of their life when um, they have the ability to provide for themselves. <laughs> so that is the sound of uh, that giving has just been made and happy people and families as a result of that. Joni, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here today. It's been great to hear more about your story. Your book is highly recommended. And please let people know where they can find you. 
Yes, you can find me um, at www.wickhamjames.com and that's where you can learn about um, our firm and you can also connect with us on social media there as well. Fabulous. And I think even just in the little bit of reading that, um, you know, I, I got a sense of Mayor James from, you know, uh, you know, when you were working together on his staff and he sounds like a fantastic leader. And I know one of the things that just to throw an extra little bit in before we say goodbye, uh, one of the things that you found yourself thinking at one time was, wow, if he can lead like that, so can I. And I think having male allies is something you talked about and something I've talked about with many other guests as well. <laughs> There's no men haters here at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we all we all need Mayor James's in our lives. That's right. The more the merrier. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. I look forward to speaking with you again sometime, Joni. Uh, thank you for sharing all your wisdom. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. And that's all for today, folks. Make sure that you subscribe to get more of this juicy goodness for your business and check the description for links mentioned in this episode. Enjoyed this free broadcast? I want you to know that I go so much deeper into the topics discussed so you too can grow a fun-to-run, highly profitable business that increases your impact and your creative flow. If you'd like to know more about that, let's arrange to hop on a call. You can set that up at creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una. That's creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una.